this week's FIFA Living Football Podcast. I'm joined by a Chile legend who certainly made his mark on the 2010 FIFA World Cup. Great opportunity here for Chile. Paredes. It's a goal. All their pressure has paid off. And Mark Gonzalez makes it 1-0. We discuss concussion with Chelsea and Arsenal great Petr Cech. I'm very happy to see this development and I'm glad that uh, everybody agreed with these concussion protocols and with the, the substitutes and uh, people take it seriously because uh, it, it really is a serious threat. We count down to Tokyo 2020 as Ryan Nelson and Lindsay Tarplay react to the Olympic football tournament draws. Plus, we find out how Honduras football is on the comeback trail. Hello again from me, Reshmin Chowdhury, on this sixth episode of the FIFA Living Football podcast. We're the little sister of the FIFA Living Football TV show, and through the course of the series, we'll be taking you around the footballing globe, sharing extraordinary stories, journeys, and interviews from the game we all love. My special guest today is currently on the other side of the world in Chile. Now, he's played over 50 times for his country, has participated in three Copa America tournaments, winning the Copa America Centenario in 2016, and he appeared for his country at the the 2010 FIFA World Cup in South Africa. A very warm welcome to Mark Gonzalez. Mark, how are you? Hello, Resmik. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. And I've got to say, I know we're um, recording this for a podcast, but my view is amazing because looking at where you're sitting, you've got this special little corner with all your football memorabilia. I can see very clearly your Liverpool shirt in a frame and plenty of other pictures behind you as well. Just tell me a little bit about your man cave here. (laughs) Yeah, this little corner is very important for me. This is my office. It was very necessary for me to have this this room uh, with all the t-shirts that I wore uh, during my career. And I have the special one here on the back, which is Liverpool, signed by all the players. That's the the Champions League final that, that we lost, unfortunately, against Milan. Uh, but it's obviously the best memory I have uh, in, in my career. And then, as you can see, there's a, a very big picture on the bottom, which was my first goal against Maccabi Haifa. That was my first, very first game, official uh, game with uh, Liverpool. And I had the, the fortune to to score as well uh, on that game, which was the the winning goal for that match, and and that permitted us get into that Champions League and and finally get to that final. Oh, so what amazing memories! Look, you've had eighteen years in five countries. We're going to talk about that in a second, but I want mm-hmm. to ask you: You're in Chile right now. What are you up to at the moment? Because you're retired now. Yeah, I retired a year and a half. I spent two years on television, but uh, nothing to do with football. Obviously, there, there are many options that, that they call you for, for doing some things, but I'm not like 100% dedicated on, on football. It's something that I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of projects and business. I'm, I'm more like a businessman right now. But uh, Great, as I said, it. I'm very interested in, in, in getting into football again. And what way would you do that? In what sense? In a coaching sense or working at a club or national level or in what capacity could you see yourself? I would like something more international. Coaching, it's something that never, it's it's not something that that I really want to do being coach. And I think that we've been under pressure so many years being a a football player. (laughs) So being a coach is going to be quite the same. So it's not, it's not what I really want. I think that I can help uh, in, in other ways, uh, other areas, especially like um, working with kids, for example, and transmitting 
about your experience and and how how to be a professional, for example, and try to help kids, you know, to to make good decisions when they get a professional. Yeah, and you know what, you're one of the best people to do it because your career has spanned 18 years. You've you know played in five different countries. You're multilingual, uh, which means that you know you're such a great asset in that sense in an international uh, feel anyway. And um, we just heard that crucial goal of yours in the group stage of the 2010 FIFA World Cup against Switzerland. How special was that moment for you? Uh, that World Cup was, was very special for me because, um, well, I was born in South Africa. I lived there until I was 10. Came back to Chile. Well, my whole family is uh, Chilean. And after that, I never came back to South Africa. And I did it for, for the World Cup. That so, was the first time you went back after you left? Yeah, I went back wow. and I met, I met again with family and friends. So after all the, these years, I mean, it was 15, I think it was. And then obviously had that luck, you know, to score against Switzerland. I think it's the dream of all football players, you know, to score in the World Cup. I think that goal was very special for many reasons. Uh, first of all, because, yeah, in personal cases, uh, score is always important. It was the, the only goal from, from the match. And, yeah, that, that, that permitted us um, qualify for, for, for the 16th stage. Uh, and that was history. That was history. I was the man of the match. Uh, I, I don't have that trophy right here. I have it. <laughs> you need to get that. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have it, but in, not, not here in this corner. I have another corner in my other house in, ah. in, 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 by the coast. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that was very special. And, and, and I think that was the most important goal in my career for, by far. Do you know what, Mark? I would go so far as to say it was your destiny to score in that game. Could be. That that year was very good for me in, 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 in general terms. I mean, I was playing in Russia in that time. I think that was the best year in my career, 2010. I got married that year. So it was, you know, like a, a pack of good things in, in that year. So definitely was the, was the best. Yeah, sounds amazing and so wonderful for so many things to come together at once for you. We're going to hear so much more of your uh, career highlights later in the show. First up this week, though, something else we're focusing on is the uh, medical side of football. And we're going to talk about this with you, Mark, as well. And it's really one of the less talked about parts of our beautiful game, concussion. Now, we're going to be hearing from the former Chelsea and Arsenal great Petr Cech shortly about his notorious experience with a head injury whilst playing for the Blues. But first, let's get the thoughts of the director of FIFA's medical department, Andy Massey, about, amongst other things, the new concussion protocol. Now, after performing as a professional footballer in the Irish League, Massey began a successful career in sports medicine, particularly as the national team doctor with the Irish Football Association, and most recently as team doctor of Liverpool FC, where he went one for Jurgen Klopp's European conquerors. He left Liverpool, in fact, to join FIFA at the start of 2020, where he's now responsible for improving the health of all who play football from grassroots to elite level all around the world, with a particular focus on preventing injuries on the field of play and promoting football as a healthy leisure activity. Living Football's Jessica Libert began by asking Massey about his experience of working alongside one of the world's greatest coaches, Jurgen Klopp. We were very fortunate um, over over the entire time I was there to be quite successful with Jurgen whenever he was there and he delivered some unbelievable experiences especially at Anfield and especially around what we call the European nights at Anfield whenever the crowds were there and the atmosphere was unbelievable. We had the, the match against Barcelona when you can 
remember the, the, the players and the staff all lining up in front of the cop. We had matches against Dortmund where we had another comeback then as well against City. And the, you know, the, the, the whole event, the drive to the stadium, whenever supporters are hanging out of their houses, um, setting off flares, setting them all up, we're, we're brilliant. But that's the, that's, that, that's, that's Jurgen's side of things and the player side of things. They're, they're the people that deliver the success. I was, I was just the doctor. So my, my experiences of working with Jurgen were more around changing, actually throughout, at that stage of my career, changing what I thought footballers were capable of, the parameters that they were able to produce uh, during matches and during training over season upon season upon season and, and we had to change what we thought we, we would do with the players to make them as robust as possible and to make them the optimal athletes that they could be so that Jürgen could then use them to, to deliver the success that he, he needed. I mean, you have an outstanding experience. You've been a professional footballer yourself in Northern Ireland. And before joining Liverpool FC, you worked with the Irish Football Association um, as national team doctor. So what motivated you to join FIFA after an amazing career at international and club level? It's the reach that FIFA has whenever you're working with international teams or club teams. It's very much a bit of a closed book. You maybe have 25, 30 players in a first team. You've maybe got 200 kids at the academy. Um, and then similar for the, the women's setup. So all in, there's maybe four or 500 people that you can influence. Um, FIFA has a global reach um, and it goes beyond that elite level. Um, I saw FIFA as a platform to actually build things that will outlast me ever working here but you know can we um, improve global life for everyone can we think of strategies that will help the the obesity pandemic that we have in the world increase physical activity if you increase those then you're going to help with the cardiovascular disease or, or or any disease that's related to physical activity so if we can find some way to do that that's a benefit and that's what you know, I really want to get my teeth into with FIFA, have a more of a global appeal to everyone who plays football, increase the participation in football through all the sexes, all the genders, um, all the age groups, and see if that will then give health benefits um, as the outcome. And you joined the organization as FIFA's medical director in very challenging times, speaking of the Pandemic. FIFA was quick to set up a COVID relief fund in October. Then an international return to play protocol was published. How can FIFA help to protect players around the world, either on the allied or grassroots levels? The, the, the president was brilliant on the front foot at, at the start of COVID to say that health comes first. And that message has been brought right through even until now. You mentioned about the international international match protocol and that was um, a booklet that we developed to try and bring the international football match calendar to keep going um, but at the bottom line the health does still come first and unfortunately in this day and age playing football does come with some risks so in uh, association with the International Match Protocol, we also developed a risk assessment tool, which mm -hmm. is a fantastic tool that can be um, used in, in any setting, be it elite level, um, national competitions, right down to the grassroots level. And it's open to everyone, so anybody can use it. If they want to play a football match, they can use this risk assessment tool and find out how they decrease the risk of maybe transmitting COVID-19 mm -hmm. to other people, or it'll give ideas and tools to mitigate that risk um, and hopefully bring that risk as close to zero as possible. 
Um, the, the, the bottom line is that we, we work with the, the experts in the World Health Organization um, to find things that everybody knows about COVID, the, the, the physical distancing, the hygiene measures, the wearing of masks, the test and tracing. These are all things that fit in. And now we're looking at the vaccine um, uh, distribution and the equitable distribution of vaccines. And there is another pressing issue that we want to talk about. I mean, you've established an independent football concussion advisory group. You've joined the FA's research task force. Um, you're one of the greatest experts when it comes to concussions. From a medical perspective, why should more attention be paid to concussions in football? The concussion question basically comes down to that we in the past have not assessed the gravity of what concussion is. And whenever I'm speaking about it, I tell people, yes, concussion is an issue. But if we change the terminology from concussion to brain injury, mm -hmm. straight away people sit up and think, well, this is a little bit more serious. So highlighting the importance of it, the gravity, the seriousness of brain injuries, concussion injuries is is paramount in my job at FIFA because we need to find ways that will decrease the incidence of it and improve our management of it as well. The FIFA Club World Cup was the first international competition to implement the trial and the trials have been now realized by over 50 competition organizers. Please tell us something about these trials and what are the options? So the trials, the basis of the trials is to try and change the narrative around concussion, try and change the importance. Um, we go with the tagline, if in doubt, sit them out. If you think that somebody has possibly suffered a concussive injury, then they need to be removed from play. We have to have zero risk whenever it comes to concussion. You mentioned about the Independent Concussion Advisory Board that we have at FIFA now. Interestingly, it's made up of different types of doctors and lay members. One of the lay members, unfortunately, his son at 14 died because of concussion. So they're able to tell that personal opinion on it. So the trials are trying to prevent something like that happening. But there's a scale of what concussion can do, as I mentioned earlier. It can cause long-term effects, so we have to take it seriously. If we think that somebody has suffered a concussive injury, or if we've seen on the video replays um, that the mechanism of the injury is enough to worry you to think about concussion, then our advice and the trials are put in place to support you take that player away. Or if you assess a player on a pitch and you think you maybe need another 15 minutes to keep an eye on this player, take them out and then the team are allowed to bring on another player in its place and it won't affect how many substitutes they've either used or already used. So towards the end of a match, um, you may be in a position where all the substitutes have been used and it shouldn't come into consideration, but we're not human if we don't think it doesn't come into consideration that taking a player out will leave your team with 10 men, this negates that human factor that I was talking about and takes a little bit of pressure off the medics who are dealing with that. What was the toughest decision you ever had to make as team doctor of Liverpool FC? With regards to concussion, I actually had two. I um, removed a player from a cup final once who um, didn't want to come off. But the most recent one was actually uh, the season before last and we were fighting for the Premier League at the time. Um, we had the second leg of the Champions League semi-final on the Wednesday. This was on a Saturday match and our leading goal scorer um, suffered a concussive injury. Um, I went on to him uh, and through the assessment I knew straight away that he needed 
be removed. And it would be. And it was Mosala. It was. It would be remiss of me to say, you know, the thought of taking this player off. We weren't winning the match. We needed to win the match to win the league. Um, and we had the Champions League coming up. That went through my head. It shouldn't have done because the decision should be straightforward. But I'm just given experiences that it definitely went through my head. Andy, um, there, there is another example. If you think about the World Cup final 2014 in Brazil, Christoph Kramer. The player didn't leave the pitch for about 15 minutes and then he asked the referee, is this the final? So if you remember seeing these pictures as a doctor, uh, what went through your mind? It's very easy watching those pictures, especially whenever you can slow it down like that. From a doctor point of view, we look at what we call the yellow and red flags. And, and Christoph displayed red flags of, of a concussive injury, the posture he took, how he landed on the floor, how he looked whenever he was being assessed. So having the replays like that are are paramount because often in football matches you miss these you have people walking in front of you even if you sit in the front row you've got the manager or the coach in front of you you have the referee's assistants you have people warming up so it's easy to miss those so in, in, in 2013 I developed the, the pitch side video replays that we would have brought to every single match so we had them and now lots of leagues have these so the doctor can look at the mechanism can see exactly that happening and make their decision straight away that that's a concussive injury. You need to remove that player. You need to treat them acutely, first of all, and make sure that they're safe, and then you need to remove them. So all FIFA competitions will have these video replays. All FIFA competitions will have concussion spotters in the stand that will go through all of these that can relay the information to the team benches if that is needed. Um, and it'll just make things an awful lot safer. So you expect to have one concussive incident every 12 matches, statistically. So this is the one side of concussions. Beyond concussion, what can we say about the link between heading and brain injuries? What we need to find out is what is, what is it that they're doing within football that's causing it. We think it is heading. We think heading has a role to play in it. But it's very difficult to set up a scientific study mm -hmm. where you will take a player and recreate them heading, especially in the younger people recreate this and get that exact link between say heading and brain injuries what we're doing at FIFA is looking at all the aspects with that you know how much of an impact a football will have at different pressures in a ball how much of an impact different sizes of footballs will have um, working with other organizations as well to try and get the answers for it the bottom line is that heading is part of football and if there is a risk associated with heading, then we have to be open with it and let people make their own decision about whether A, they want to play football or B, they want to head the ball during football. That's very simple. We do have to think about the younger age groups who maybe aren't in a position to make that informed, consensual decision and protect them. Andy, why did you also make tackling the issue of mental health a key objective of FIFA's medical subdivision. The discipline of sports medicine and especially football medicine is essentially a young discipline. Um, so the scientific evidence behind lots of the stuff that we do is not on a par say with with oncology or, or the other disciplines of medicine. We've catching up to do. So in order to be uh, you know, to congratulate ourselves for the work that football medicine have done. I prefer going the other way and saying, well, what have we not done? Where are the gaps within the literature? What do we need to do to help? So concussion and brain injury is a massive one at the moment. 
mental health is another one. It was a taboo subject until five, ten years ago. People didn't like talking about it. It was a sign of weakness. So we bring it out into the open now and we try and help people or you know, think of coping strategies or think of ways that we can address the mental health issue. It's massively prevalent within football. Whether it's at the elite level, you know, it takes an awful lot for someone to play a football match and have 50,000 supporters boo him you know, or shout obscenities at him, you know, that has to affect you mentally. And then as you work down the football pyramid, you might have, you know, teenagers going through academy systems, basing their whole life around football and then being told perhaps they're not good enough for it. You know, that weighs an awful lot on it. Um, and the further you go down the pyramid, is say the more prevalent it becomes. So can we use football to tackle this? Can we use football to help with our resources to, to, to treat mental health issues? Coming back to concussions and brain injuries, um, there has already been some progress on that field. What incident, for example, changed the concussion rule in England? As I say, that's, it's a developing field. It's, it, it, it's very fluid. We, um, the, the, maybe the, the most prominent incident happened back around about 2006 with Peter Cech whenever. It was the first incident that I can remember that a player resulted in a fractured skull um, and we can all remember the pictures of whenever that happened I think it was he, he, he received a knee to his head whenever he came out to save it and following on from that certainly within the Premier League we changed our concussion protocols and we changed the way we educate and manage the, the, the acute injury the acute emergency as it turns out to be um, for that exact injury and, and you know whilst I would say that we still have um, a l very large distance to go to make everything perfect. There are also examples now of, of people who are unfortunately suffering you know, fractured skulls through impact on a football pitch that are being managed the best way possible. Um, we're not going to be able to stop the impacts happening, unfortunately. We can try and limit them, but football is still a contact game, so we've got to be absolutely on point about how we manage them and how we re rehabilitate them. Yeah, Mark, concussion is obviously a very serious subject and it's something I know that you experienced yourself in 2008 whilst you were playing for your national team against Argentina in a FIFA World Cup qualifier. You don't remember any of it, do you? I don't. <laughs> I just remember the warm-up. I saw images. It's quite strange to, to see myself playing until this concussion uh, happened. I only have versions, obviously, from, from doctors and teammates Uh, because obviously I, I wanted to know what happened. It was really strange. I mean, I, I, I jumped to header a ball in the box and I had it, the head of Burdizo in that case. Both of us just um, fell, fainted. When I fell, my leg just got, I don't know, I pulled my leg or something strange because I was fainted. And I had this, um, I had my medial ligament cut off as well. well you lost the, complete I, control of your body. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, Everything went blackout. Doctors came in immediately. There was an ambulance. Uh, everything happened like there were like seven minutes in the pitch, you know, attending me. But in that moment, everybody went to Burdizo because he was bleeding and no one realized who was worse. Or what me, it was me, you know. Uh, doctors said that, that I came back very aggressive and then, and then I went blackout again. So... In, in that case, um, 
protocols from, from medicals in, in that moment, I think they were very uh, good because, as I said, there's always an ambulance normally out of the pitch in case, you know, any something serious happened, they can attend you immediately. So after this uh, seven minutes with me on the pitch, they took me immediately to the, to the hospital. I was blackout until I, I woke up at the hospital. It, it almost took me to death. Uh, this accident um something that i think uh, i can tell today I, i've passed through many other serious injuries that that almost took me to death as well but um in this case i think that um, they respond really quick i mean they made good decisions made all the exams uh, that, that i needed in, in that moment and then i suffered i, I don't know how, how to say it in english that i don't i don't have that word it's um you 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 know the spanish right um yeah. uh, vertigo. Kind of vertigo vertigo oh yes the same vertigo yes fear vertigo. of heights right. but or dizziness basically. exactly yeah dizziness yeah. so the doctor said that uh probably uh, i'm gonna suffer um this vertigo you know dizziness yeah. uh, like during it's very know, serious a, actually. a month yeah and and it was like that i mean sometimes yeah. i was just talking you know and then i had this really bad dizziness that, that I had to just lay down. Uh, I could be watching TV and, and, and this Disney will come, but it was something so fast, you know, quick, you know, that, that I don't know, you could fail, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I suffered that like for a month. And after that, it's something very curious. Uh, I was the, the type of players that always used to jump, you know, and just had it with hundred percent. And after this accident, I was always thinking twice to go and, and header a ball. I mean, I, I kept this uh, uh, fear, you know, to go and, and fight a ball, you know, in the air again. I was always thinking in, in this accident. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it was a, a really bad experience for me. Something that I, like I said, I forgot. I mean, I, I don't remember anything. It never came back and it won't come back anyway. And, and yeah, I mean, I was lucky. And I'm lucky to be here with, with you guys today and, and sharing this, this bad experience. Yeah, it's, it's, an incredible, it's an incredible to see you actually so well, having lived through something as awful as that. I mean, look, FIFA is going to implement a new protocol. It's in line with IFAB circular number 21, so a little bit technical here. But basically, each team will be permitted to use a maximum of one concussion substitute in a match. So the substitution will be made um, regardless of whether other substitutions have been made already. I mean, obviously, when, you know, there's health is the utmost issue here, but sometimes in, in the situation of allowing play to continue, that is something new that's being introduced, a concussion substitute. And we're actually going to hear from another player, actually, who was seriously affected by this issue during his playing career as well. It's the former Chelsea and Arsenal goalkeeper. And now the technical advisor at Chelsea, actually, Petr Cech. The former Czech Republic captain famously suffered a bad head injury whilst playing for Chelsea against Reading in a Premier League match. And that was back in October 2006. Cech was taken off after several minutes. He underwent surgery for a depressed skull fracture, which is what you've been discussing, Mark. And initially, he was unaware of the seriousness of the injury and 
and the doctors later reported that it actually nearly cost Czech his life. So he thankfully, very much like Mark, made a full recovery and he went on to play for another very successful 13 years. And uh, with a little help, of course, from that iconic sort of uh, rugby style head guard that he used mm -hmm. for protection. And uh, we started by asking the most capped Czech player of all time how he coped in the aftermath of that dramatic incident. I think you need to have the right support. You have to have the right understanding. And as well, uh, you need to have the right uh, mentality towards uh, the recovery, towards uh, you know, you know, the, the advice you get. And um, I think it's very individual, but um, I believe that when you, get, uh, when you get the right guidance and the right support from the people around you, from the club, and from the medical team, uh, and of course you have yourself, uh, you have this drive and, and inner energy to, you know, to follow and, and, and come back because uh, that's ultimately what, uh, what matters. Then I think you are guided by the way, you eliminate a lot of risk and, and then you can, um, you can come back. Of course, there are cases where things are not happening as well uh, or people have the anxiety to return to playing. And, but as I said, it's individual. My, my target was when I got injured was not to think if it's the end of my career. That was the last thing I was thinking about. I put it in my mind as an eventual possibility because that was a possibility. So you have to just clear your mind and accept uh, the options you have. And the option number one, of course, was to do everything what was possible for me to do to return to pitch. But the option number two was, okay, prepare for the wars and, uh, and accept that it might not be possible to return in a plane. But there are so many other things you can, you can do. So I put that in my mind. But of course, the priority of me and everybody was to, uh, to return to the pitch. And this was the first uh, what, what we've done. You have to accept as well that uh, before you can go on the football pitch, you need to be uh, fit enough to walk and to live a normal life. And then, then you add and you go step by step. And, and you know, I'm, a, I'm one of the people who really like to work with process, you know, step by step. Everything has a meaning. Every step has a meaning. So I, I don't really think too much ahead. I just go each step to, to reach my target. And, and this recovery actually... You know, that approach from me, it was actually help, uh, helpful because, you know, we just went step by step without not thinking too much about what will happen and, and where it goes. So I, I always like to give myself the best possible chance and I gave myself the best possible chance by respecting the medical advice, by doing everything uh, I needed to, to put myself in the in best position. And, and it paid out for me and, and initially the, the dream of coming back uh, to the pitch uh, was very strong and, and it was getting closer and closer and, and I managed to come back. Which was incredible, but you did in between three months. We just spoke to Andy Massey. He's FIFA's new medical director. He was former team doctor at Liverpool FC. And you know that now there are these concussion trials happening all over the world, 50 competitions are existing where they are now implemented. What do you think about these developments now? I'm very happy to see to see these developments because if we if we remember the medical team in in terms of the concussion is under a lot of pressure during the game. Imagine you play a very important game and you need to be 11 v 11. You know you don't you don't you don't want people to be disadvantage for five minutes because in a top game in the elite sport 
you know, even five seconds sometimes makes a big difference. So, you know, you try to make the assessment as best as possible to protect the player. But these are the moments where you, the medical team is under a lot of pressure because obviously they know how it how much it means to the team and how much the manager needs the player. So these concussion substitutes actually they take this away because you know when you know your team is not down to ten men that somebody helps out while you get properly assessed that you are not put under risk. Uh, that anybody else is put under risk because people have to realize as well that you know a, a concussed player might have a um, more difficult decision making and, and then you make a late tackle or or you can you know you can harm yourself or somebody else by making wrong judgment and in the high speed in the elite football you know this is actually quite um, uh, possible and, and and a realistic threat so these uh, substitutes actually take away all this uh, element of uh, the pressure from the medical team because the team is not playing down to 10 men. If the, if the player is properly assessed and cannot return, the other player is already in play and then you just put them in and, and the game goes on. And, and I, think, I think this is actually probably the best way uh, forward because uh, you know, like that we can assure the, the best possible uh, assessment of the players and, and, and the health and safety of uh, everybody on the pitch. Well, it's great to hear Petter's thoughts on the um, protocol side of it. But for you, Mark, how does it feel when you hear someone else's story? Definitely, Peter's situation was much worse than, than mine. Uh, I like uh, the way he, he sorted out, you know, all this problem step by step, like he said. And, and thank God he came back. I mean, the risk that he had to, to not come back, it was really big. And he managed it to achieve, you know, this, uh, this way to come back to, to football, which was very important. I think that that mask, you know, that, that he had, it made him more famous, I think. You know, when I say, who's Peter Cech? Um, yeah, no, he's the, oh, he's the one with the, with the mask. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, like I said, I mean, I really um, admire his, uh, his way to, to, to manage, you know, this, these bad situations. He has his, uh, his thinkings about these protocols, which I think it's really good. I have mine in this case. Obviously, we think that it's really good to, to not lose, you know, a substitution and, and have a, another teammate who can replace you in that bad moments. And like I said, I mean, th- these kind of accidents, they, they don't happen often, but obviously it can happen every, every game. Yeah. And the good thing is that it is being discussed and organizations are looking at ways to sort of help people who have been affected by it, but also to make sure that, you know, going forward, that these sorts of really serious issues don't don't happen again. So, you know, bravo to all the organizations discussing, you know, concussion protocols and and trying to make that better. Well, still to come, we'll be heading to Honduras and counting down to Tokyo 2020 with two legends of the game. Hello, I'm Kaká and you are listening to FIFA's Living Football Podcast. Hello, I'm Reshmin Chowdhury and alongside me is the former Chile, Liverpool and Real Betis winger Mark Gonzalez. Now, we are going to focus on the Olympics now, where last week FIFA hosted the tournament draws for both the men and women's events that are taking place in Tokyo later this year. British TV presenter and journalist and a good friend of mine, Samantha Johnson, was joined for the draw by Lindsay Tarplay, member of the USA women's national team and the two-time Olympic gold medalist, and Ryan Nelson, captain of the New Zealand Olympic squad in 2008 and London 2012. Let's hear their reaction to the draws, but first about their own unique Olympic experiences. 
Right, I'm very pleased to talk to two true legends here at the home of FIFA, Lindsay Topley and Ryan Nelson. Thank you very much for joining me. We've just had an amazing draw. Now, we did speak about this very briefly, about your experiences, you know, being mm -hmm. an Olympian, winning two gold medals. But can you just take us back to Athens all over again? <laughs> Athens, yes. Um, you know, one thing that I love about talking about that tournament specifically is I was fortunate to take part in a Youth World Cup leading up to Athens, and it was a very critical time in my development as a player to understand what it was going to take at the highest level and how to train to be a world-class player. And if I wouldn't have had that experience, I would have had a harder time making the jump to the senior women's national team. And so by the age of 19, I was competing in Athens and ended up scoring a goal in the gold medal match. And a lot of that was because of what I learned going through the process um, as a youth and 19. the development that I learned. 19. I feel like I've done nothing with my life. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, okay, so that's Athens. Can you talk about Beijing mm -hmm. as well and the experiences you had in those Olympics? Great question. So in Athens, I was a younger player. And then in Beijing, I was more of a, a leader, a veteran player. And it was a very interesting role for me to play and different. But at the same time, um, we, we won both tournaments. But I felt like the journey that we went through was very different. In Beijing, we actually lost our opening match against Norway. And so starting the tournament, obviously not how we had envisioned it. But it was time to figure it out for us. And we left that game and figured out um, a way to get to the final. And it made us that much stronger throughout the tournament. And so sometimes looking at these Olympic draws, you have to understand that you're going to face very, very good competition. And it's a, it's, a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Amazing. Right, Ryan, we've got to bring the, the big man here. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, <laughs> we just had an amazing draw for the men's and the women's. What stood out for you? I think the, um, the group on the women's side, mm -hmm. Group G, I think, stands out for me the most. I mean, probably from the women's side, you, you want to avoid the USA, right? I mean, they are being phenomenal. <laughs> look, look at that smart look. You want to avoid <laughs> Lindsay. Pretty oh, much. Don't avoid <laughs> it. Love it. Love it. <laughs> and so, you know, with Sweden, one of, the, one of the best teams in the tournament as well, Sweden matched up with the US. And then you've got the down under duo of Australia and New Zealand that will be kind of uh, a rivalry inside a little group as well. It's a really exciting kind of group. Um, that's one that I'll be really looking forward to watching. And what did you learn about yourself you know, playing in the Olympics? It's effectively the, the biggest stage in world sport. It's not just football. It's all the sports coming together, all the best athletes in the world in one place. Yeah, exactly. And what I learned is that it's from the other tournaments, it's kind of football fans are kind of watching, you know, where the Olympics, everybody's watching from whether it's fencing or judo or whatever. They're all kind of watching and they're all supporting their country and wanting them to do well. So you get, you know, all sorts of kind of, you know, fans from every sport kind of hoping you're kind of doing well or wanting you to lose or something, you know. And that kind of brings the whole sporting kind of world together for kind of one event, and it's, and it's great. Okay, let's turn our attentions back to the women's game. And I suppose the next uh, Women's World Cup is going to be in New Zealand um, and Australia. For the first time, we're going to have 32 teams. Can you just give us an insight into how important this is for the growth of the women's game? It's well, effectively a home games for you as well. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, it's, I, th I think you, you, you touched on it. 32 teams is, first of all, fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's great. That gives 32 countries 32 young ladies looking up um inspiring kind of athletes and 
and that's really important for the growth of the game. We've we've seen it go from 2019 was amazing. Mm. Um, I know 2023 hopefully will be, and I know the countries, I know Australia, New Zealand, they they love women's sport, they love their soccer, they love sporting fans, so they will embrace it. And I think having 32 teams is more global, more eyes on it, mm. and that's exciting. Mm-hmm. And, that, and it's something to build on as well. I mean, 2019 uh, in France, that was the most successful Women's World mm-hmm. Cup. And you, it's just going to get better and better, mm-hmm. isn't it? I think so. I mean, you look back at um, how far we've come with the women's game. And by 2026, it, they're expecting over 60 million young, young women to be playing. And that's amazing to have that many people involved with the game. And um, Mark Gonzalez, are you disappointed that you never got to play at an Olympic Games? I mean, they were talking about the World Women's World Cup there, actually, that's being held in Australia and New Zealand. But in terms of the Olympics, because that was the draw that was last week, are you disappointed at that? I am, very much. <laughs> I had this uh, pre-Olympic uh, tournament. Uh, which was played here in Chile. I remember that the rules in the beginning was it was just one big round yeah. uh, and the first two qualified direct to the Olympic Games. And INFB, which is like the, the Chilean Federation, they said, okay, we're going to make a second round to give Chilean uh, like more uh, options, you know, for them to, to qualify. And uh, the first round, we, 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 we ended up in, in first place. Uh, how, how do you say uh, Invictus in, Invictus unbeaten in, unbeaten, unbeaten. Mm-hmm. I mean just a draw one or two draws and just other uh, winning games so if it would have been like in, in the first time you know that they said just one round we would have gone to to the to the Olympic games and in the second round we got uh, disqualified and I remember that Argentina and Paraguay they qualify and both teams ended up in the final in the Olympic Games. Wow. So I was wow. like, man, I mean, if we would have qualified, I mean, for sure we would have, we would have been there. <laughs> Winning a medal. Yeah. Oh, look, you yeah. won other amazing things. That's such a shame, though. I, well, look, it's a really exciting time, actually, for the women. I'm just going to go through the um, the women's yeah. Olympic groups, and I'm going to ask you about it in a second. Group E, it's Japan, Canada, Great Britain and Chile. Group F, China. Uh, Brazil, Zambia and the Netherlands, Group G, Sweden, USA, Australia and New Zealand put together. And in the men's groups, it's uh, Group A is Japan, South Africa, Mexico and France. Group B is New Zealand, Korea Republic, Honduras and Romania. Group C is Egypt, Spain, Argentina and Australia. And Group D is Brazil, Germany, Cote d'Ivoire and Saudi Arabia. And both events will run from the 21st of July to the 7th of August 2021 across six Japanese cities. I've got to ask you, going back to the women, so Group E, as I said, Japan, Canada, Great Britain and Chile. And for the women, this is the first time they've ever qualified in the Olympics, isn't it? Yeah, very first time. As a country, we are very happy about that. I think that the the Chilean, um, you know, national team of, of women, little by little, they, they've been demonstrating, you know, all these achievements, you know, uh, it, it's been it's been this Olympic game right now. It's been uh, a World Cup. I, I think that they were second, you know, in this like American Cup. And, and they've been demonstrated that I think that women's soccer, you know, should be supported as the same as men. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a discussion that, that it's on today. Here in Chile, for example, I mean, women's so- uh, football is not supported and then when, for example, now they're going to the Olympic Games, when they win a game, everybody's happy. I mean, you want to celebrate, but, but you don't support, you know. It's, it, there are two things that, that uh, it, there's a big discussion today about that. 
I think yeah. they deserve it. They they are a, a group of of girls that they're very confident. I don't know them much, but what I've seen, I mean, they, they are a very strong group. I think that's something that that they don't have advantage. It's uh their their physical, you know, because if you compare with other world potentials like Sweden, like US, yeah, Great Britain, uh, and and this group, for example, Japan, Great Britain, and Canada, mm. uh, yeah, you say okay, statistics. I don't know, maybe Chile doesn't qualify, but I mean, I've always said that you have to play the games in the pitch. You eleven against eleven, and, and anything can happen. I think that we all confidence. I mean, all confidence that they can do a. A great Olympic game, like I said, uh, we're very happy about that, and yeah, we can we can only support from from the back. It's their first time in the Olympics this summer um, in Tokyo, uh, 2020. But of course, the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup will be taking place in Australia and New Zealand. How much of a platform could the Olympics be, and how much of an eye should the women's team have on that tournament to be able to put themselves in contention for that? I think that every every tournament and big tournament, you know, uh, that, that that you play and you get the chance to play, it gives you confidence. It's always confidence. Uh, obviously, that if if they if they make a great uh, Olympic Games, everything should be easier for them to get to play a World Cup. I mean, they already they already played one, and I think that this this confidence that they have and 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 all this energy. Is going to be uh, focused in in qualify once again to a World Cup and and maybe doing a, a better um, I say uh, work you know on, on this World Cup. As I said many times, you know uh, this this advantage you know it's a, it's the physical. In Chile, we have like a, a standard of of uh, of height, you know, like one seventy, and and we're quite little, you know. And that I think that it's something really important today in football. But uh, every year you get like more youth and youth players, and that they always uh, surprise you, and 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 they get every year better and better. I think that these tournaments are very important for that. I mean, to to polish yourself and 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 win more confidence. Well, you know what, Mark, stature isn't always the thing. Sometimes it's all about. Um... What is it? It's the style, isn't it? Look at Chabi, look at Iniesta, look at David Silva, look at everything they won. So you know what? The hope is still good for the Chilean uh, national side. And now, actually, we're going to head to Central America and to the beautiful country of Honduras, whose men's national side have competed in three FIFA World Cups. The Federation of Football of Honduras has benefited hugely from FIFA's COVID-19 relief fund, which has helped them put money into their football infrastructure at all levels of the game. Rob Daly can tell us more. Honduras is a nation of men, women and children who love their football. Like so many others, the global pandemic has hit the country hard, but the FIFA Forward programme has allowed the sport to flourish. Jose Ernesto Mejia is the General Secretary at Fenefuth. FIFA Forward has truly brought an important change, not only in our way of thinking and of developing infrastructure, but also in the way that projects are executed. FIFA has always supported us. One big aim for the Federation of Football of Honduras has been to encourage support for young people in football, helping children from the ages of 6 up to 18 enjoy the game. Wilfredo Avila from the South Region Office has praised the exceptional new facilities. 
As a Honduran and football official, I want to give my thanks to the FIFA president, Gianni Infantino, for believing in Honduran football and for providing such significant support, which is also financial. With those funds, there has been a significant investment in all areas of Honduran football, in sporting infrastructure, at virtually every level of the sport in Honduras. Federation President Jorge Salomon feels recent help has been crucial to their infrastructure. We'll hear from the president in a moment, but first, head of the Central East Region Office, Carlos Cruz, explains just how important the funding has been. We have a synthetic pitch, a mini stadium in Teotihuacan, and now we also have La Casa de la H, where we are right now. It has a sports pitch, national team facility, plus the hydrotherapy area, and also the gym. So this will help us to develop everything, the youth, children's, female and senior teams. I think for a country such as ours, enabling the development of football through the FIFA Forward programme is one of the things that is really making a difference. So I would like to congratulate FIFA and everyone that works on these projects and on all the development work that is being carried out in terms of infrastructure and the development of football through Honduras and the CONCACAF region. Honduras boasts strong national teams at every level of the game, and FIFA's support means they can keep moving forward, both on and off the pitch. So, Mark, you played against Honduras in the FIFA 2010 World Cup. Uh, you beat them 1-0 in your opening group stage win, which we've talked about. So you must know just how important it is for FIFA to be helping these smaller nations, particularly at this time during a global pandemic, where there is so much uncertainty in the world. Yeah, well, I've played twice with Honduras. <laughs> I played in the World Cup, and in my very first game as a starting game, that was my national team. We did it in Honduras, and I scored my first goal was a national team as well. So I have very good memories with Honduras. Wow. Uh, I'm very happy for this uh, initiative of, uh, of FIFA uh, supporting uh, small countries and small leagues in the world. I mean, it's always important for, for football in general uh, have these options. It's always uh, important, you know, to have different countries. Uh, hopefully, you know, all the World Cups uh, have different countries. I mean, obviously that you have to that you have to play and qualify. But if you say, but for example, here in South America, who's going to qualify for the World Cup? You always say uh, Argentina, Brazil, like for sure. And then you have uh, another three. So it's always good to have surprises. Uh, and 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 have you know uh, these teams you know um, the option you know to to keep playing and 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 have the chance to to qualify to important tournaments like in 2010 Honduras did it. I think that the support right now is it's more important than than never, especially with uh, all the tests that 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 all the teams should uh, should make like every every week. I think they have to be very strict, you know, in in, in that case. Uh, I know it's difficult, you know. I think football is not the same way with the fans, but uh, at least, I mean, they can still uh, work, you know, and, and, and play and, and, and keep us, you know, in, in, in some way distract from, from work and, and watch football, which is something very important for, for everyone. But I, I, I'm really happy, like I said, for, for this initiative of, of FIFA supporting Honduras and and maybe just not Honduras, maybe there, there are many, many other countries and leagues that, that they also need support. 
Yeah, absolutely. There are. And FIFA are doing some really great work across so many smaller nations that need their assistance at this difficult time. We're going to go shortly. But before we do, Mark, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear a few more of your career highlights and recollections Mm -hmm. because uh, uh, there are so many of them. So if you could pick one moment in your career to relive, to do all over again, what would it be? Wow, that's a that's a difficult question. There, there are a few very big moments in my career. I think that, yeah, definitely the, the, the World Cup goal, like I said at the beginning, that's the most important goal that, that I've scored in my career. Then I think that my very first game with Liverpool, the one here in the back, uh, that was very, very important as well. That, that has like a special meaning as well because I remember uh, that I was on the bench, came in in the 85th minute, for Steven Gerrard, uh, I mean, I, I I couldn't have more pressure. I mean, I came in for Steven Gerrard. It was like, man, he's coming out, you're going in. I mean, you should do the legend <laughs> better than him. And I scored three three minutes after. So I mean, it was it was amazing. And then I just want to thank football in general. I think uh, every place that I that I played, I have a special memory. And I think that uh, football in general gave me many, many things that I'm very grateful. I don't know, a part of football, I mean, in life, uh, I think football helped me a lot. Being a good person, learning more things. Uh, well, I had the luck because of football. My, my father was a football player as well. And because of that, I was born in South Africa and I've been talking to you today with the English there are many things that football uh, gives you and, and we just have to be grateful. And when you look back at that career and, you know, it is incredible and everything you said, it's all the opportunities and life experiences that football has given you. Who would you say has been the, the biggest driving force of your career? <sighs> my family, my, my mother and, and my grandparents, my mom's mom and, and dad. I, mean, I think it's, it's very important for you to have your family support in the beginning and then I think that the 80% of the rest is uh, it's mentally Uh, I left my house when I was 13 I cried every day but there was something that I had really clear and 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 that was that I I wanted to be a football player and I wanted to get a professional Um, most of the time not always the best players get to professional the ones who get there are the most forced ones and I think that uh in the beginning, I was one of those that uh, I was always very forced, you know, to, to work and, and do things right and to be better every day. I think that that's something that, that players need to know. And that's one of the experiences that I, I want to share today with kids. But the most important thing, like I said, number one is uh, your family support. And I think, you know, you hear it from so many top, top footballers and actually top athletes a similar kind of story actually just you know when you're young and you're you're away from your family like the the mental resilience that you you develop I mean if you had to pick your footballing hero who would that be oh that's a good one um when I started as a as a professional I was uh I was a left fullback really I was I was I was I was a forward first Mm -hmm. and then because well my my nickname is Chico Mark Little Mark. Little Mark. And that was because, yeah, literally is I was little, very little until I was 10, 17 or something like that. And I was very, very lightweight, you know, and my and my idol was Roberto Carlos. 
Ah. Yeah, it was Roberto Carlos, and 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 yeah, and because I was well, they took me from playing forward to fullback because my height, you know. Yeah. And I had to learn to defend, play as a fullback. I mean, that was something that was always uh, as well mentally because yeah. I could have said, you know what, I don't want this. I'm gonna go somewhere else. That happens, and and I learned how to play uh, as a fullback. I was really good, and, and in that position is where uh, I got to play professional. And Roberto Carlos was my mirror. Uh, I said, I want to be like him. I was, I was quick, you know, I was fast. Uh, I, I didn't have the, the muscle that, that he had, but, uh, <laughs> but we had very many things in common, you know, playing. And because I said, why, why did I say uh, we have to be grateful of football? Because years after, I, I got to know him when he played in Russia. And, and those are like very, very nice moments. I mean, I remember watching TV, you know, Champions League and, and watching, for example, David Beckham, Zidane, Figo and all these stars, you know. And years after, I was playing against them uh, with uh, Albacete and Real Madrid. I have a picture here on the back with David Beckham, for example. And then you say, yeah, these are, are, the, are the good things that football gives you, you know. I mean, I, I'm talking about, I don't know, from that time, Three years before, I was watching them here in Chile on TV playing Champions League. Yeah. And then I was playing against them. It's something amazing. Or being teammates with Steven Gerrard, for example, or Xavi Alonso. These are the, the, the great things that, that, that football gives you, like I said. So, yeah, well, Roberto Carlos was my mirror as a player. Well, do you know what? He's, he's a hero for so many people. I'm sure you're a hero for so many young Chilean footballers coming through now for everything that you've achieved everywhere that you've been, all the things that, as you say, football has given you. A FIFA legend, Mark Gonzalez, it's been such a pleasure having you alongside me today. Thank you for your time. We hope you enjoyed talking to us as well. Yeah, thank you very much, Rosemary. It's been a pleasure to know you, to know all of you guys. And I'm very uh, I'm very happy to to share my experience with you and and, and I really appreciate your invitation as well. Oh, thank you. So many lovely stories as well. Um, really lovely to talk to you, Mark. And we hope that you, the listeners, have enjoyed the show too. Please do subscribe to us via your favourite podcast provider and make sure you join us next week as we continue to take you behind the scenes at FIFA. Remember to head to FIFA.com to watch the Living Football TV show and for comprehensive coverage of all FIFA's tournaments and initiatives. And if you're into football and music, which is a little bit of all of us, isn't it? You can download the Play On podcast presented by One Direction. Liam Payne. But until next time, from myself and from Mark, it's goodbye.